Our reading today is from Psalm 30. Psalm 40, sorry. Uh, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud as those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Just a few moments ago, Jill read from Psalm chapter 40. And in that psalm, really, the Messiah is speaking and he is talking about how God has prepared him to do his will and ultimately how he obeys the Lord and how he suffers on our behalf. And you read the emotion of Jesus as Jesus takes the sin of you and I upon himself and prays to God and asks for God to deliver him. And the reason I wanted that psalm read, there's a verse that, that says, I delight to do your will. And the book of Hebrews, quoting that psalm, says this, that a body, God the Father, prepared for God the Son, 
so that Jesus could be our sacrifice, so that he could bear our sin and our guilt for us. And today, we're in the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 at the end of the chapter. And we see a glimpse into the life of 12-year-old Jesus. And in that little snapshot, we begin to get a sense of what God the Father did in preparing Jesus and leading him ultimately to the cross. And if you've grown up hearing about Jesus and you, you know a little bit about who he is and what he did, you, you might remember his preaching, you might remember some of the things he taught, maybe you remember the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You, you might remember different pictures of his life. You, you might think of he broke the bread and fed 5,000 people, plus women and children, from a little boy's lunch. You might remember he walked on water. There are so many things from his life that give us different images. And if you remember who he is in dying for us and rising from the dead, and knowing that he is not just a man, but that he is God the Son, the eternal God, who became a man for us, so he could die in our place, then I think it's very natural, especially after you think of the birth of Jesus and the Christmas story, to just wonder just a little bit, what was toddler Jesus like? What was the boy Jesus like? We, honestly, we, we don't really know. The Bible tells us almost nothing about the life of Jesus. We believe he was about 33 years old when he died. But most of what we have is the last three years of his life. For the first 30, we know almost nothing. We have just two pictures of the events that took place around his birth. One in Matthew and one that we just looked at in the book of Luke. And then we have this one little snapshot of his life as a 12-year-old. And I can imagine, as Luke, the author of this gospel, you know, he says right in chapter 1 that, that he conducted interviews with people, that he diligently researched the people who saw Jesus firsthand, and he diligently talked to the people that could tell him anything and everything about what Jesus did. I can just imagine Luke sitting down with Mary and asking her, with the same kind of puzzled question, trying to think of what it was like for the Son of God to be a baby and then a child and then a boy. I can just imagine Luke looking at Mary and saying, did you ever have any trouble with Jesus as a boy? Because he's the sinless Son of God. He is the spotless Lamb. He never sinned. So what is it like to have a sinless child? I can tell you, I've got three. I can't imagine it. I don't know what it would have been like. But I can imagine Mary, maybe with a twinkle in her eye, telling Luke this story. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Luke, I want to encourage you to follow along with me as I read. You can, you can find it on your phone. We've got Bibles throughout the sanctuary here. Follow along with me. I'm going to read from Luke Chapter 2, starting in verse 40 through the end of the chapter. And the child grew 
and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You know, this, this glimpse into the life of the boy Jesus, I think, helps us maybe in part think about the difficulty of raising the perfect child. You know, and, and it wasn't without trouble. One guy that I read talked about how this is actually the first small way that Mary felt that sword. You remember the sword Simeon, that, that old man that met them at the temple, looks at them as he's holding baby Jesus, and he says to Mary... This baby is appointed for the fall and rise of many, and a sword shall pierce your heart also. And how Mary would have remembered that moment and not fully knowing what it would mean, maybe thought about it on this day, being confused about who this baby is becoming as he grows and is approaching adulthood. Because at this time, adulthood is considered about 13. He is a boy, but he is about to become a man in Jewish society and in Jewish culture. And so she's starting to think, what is happening? Who is this baby becoming? What is, and, and it says that they did not understand. And so you do get a little bit of a glimpse what it would have been like to grow up understanding that this baby is the son of God in the most literal sense, and yet not having a full understanding of what he would do and what he would be as a man. You know, I was talking to Dave Padgett, one of our, our members here, last week. And as you read through the story in Luke, you know, the, the birth is announced by the angel Gabriel. And the angel tells Mary, you know, who the baby is and, and what they're to name him. And that he's the savior of the world, Christ the Lord. And, and you can imagine, it, you get to, this, is, this is important, this is hugely important. This has global significance. And then Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, lose the baby. And think, what did Gabriel think? Like, you had one job. You were supposed to raise the baby, and you lost him. But then, honestly, we shouldn't be too harsh with them. Yeah, I, I told first service, I think it was probably about 11 years ago, 
that we were sitting in church, uh, and we used to go over to, to The Rock in Fenton, and uh, there are a couple hundred people in the service, and, and I was actually just sitting down in the service listening to the message, and uh, in the middle of Pastor Jim preaching, and Pastor Jim preaches with a lot of emotion and a lot of passion, he's very riveting, so he's usually very focused, uh, Jill Knuth actually walked into the service and said, excuse me, I'm really sorry, I've got to stop the service. Has anyone seen a six-year-old boy? We're missing a boy. And if you could just look under your seat, we think maybe he crawled in here. And sure enough, my, now my brother-in-law at the time, who's was my girlfriend's little brother, uh, about six years old, had decided that he was just too tired for church and crawled under a pew in the back and went to sleep. And we didn't realize it until church was well underway and it was too late to find him on our own, and we interrupted the service to find a boy that we lost. We can also think, you know, uh, my parents left my sister at church when she was very small once. Uh, mom, is, mom is blaming my dad right now. It's dad's fault. <laughs> oh, mom was homesick. Okay, I, I was in error in first service. So it was completely dad's fault. Sorry, dad. And then I also told first service, I am not going to tell you about any of the times that we have lost any of our children or how recently that may have been. <laughs> These events, they really do give you a little bit of color into the life of Jesus. And that's important because it, it helps us understand his humanity. If he is going to die on behalf of the sins of the whole world and he's going to die as a man, it means he has to really be human. And this episode lets you see his humanity, just a single glimpse into the life of the household of Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus. And I think that, that we can laugh a little bit because it is kind of funny. I, I think there's great humor in the moment where they finally find him after three or possibly four days because he is genuinely surprised that they're even remotely upset. He is a genuine 12-year-old boy. When his mom says, how could you do this to me? He says, what did I do? He doesn't sin in any of this. It seemed like the right thing to do for him. And I want to remind you, we, we looked at Mary's song, that, that beautiful song that, that she sings as she talks to her cousin Elizabeth about how she's rejoicing in God the Savior, how he has blessed her with this baby, and she's praising him for the salvation that he's going to bring through her baby, and how similar that song is to a song sung by Hannah in the Old Testament. You may remember Hannah longs to have a baby boy. She's barren, and God blesses her with a baby boy. Baby Samuel, yeah. And, and out of that, as Hannah's prayer is answered, she, she sings this beautiful song, thanking God for answering her prayer in such specific and concrete ways. And it's almost as if Mary, thinking of that song, writes her own. They're so similar in a lot of ways. And what Jesus does here is he does what baby Samuel did as, as Hannah gives her baby to the Lord and dedicates him to temple service so that Samuel the boy grows up in the temple, 
it's almost as if Jesus looks back at that and says, Mom, don't you remember that song you sang? Don't you, like, Hannah left her baby at the temple. I am doing what the Father has called me to do. Why are you surprised by any of this? But you see the humanity of his parents, and you see his humanity in this moment as he is beginning to fulfill the unique call that God has placed on his life. You see him relating to his earthly human family, and yet you also see him, I've stressed his humanity, you also see his divinity. You see, he knows that Joseph is not his father. The temple is obviously not Joseph's house. He says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? That there's a heavenly priority that is more important than the household of Joseph in Nazareth. And so you see a number of things in this. I mentioned last week, a lot of the obedience that Mary and Joseph had is so critical for Jesus being our savior. You know, he perfectly kept the law for us. He obeyed in every place where you and I have not obeyed, which makes him a fitting savior. And you see that this is still true. You see Mary and Joseph are showing their obedience to God's law, which matters enormously so that Jesus can one day be our savior. He never broke any of God's law. He kept the 10 commandments perfectly. And so when God commanded his people to go to the temple and to observe the Passover, bearing in mind Mary and Joseph are doing this 2,000 years after God commanded the children of Israel to do it through Moses. Their obedience spans millennia, literally. And you see that their obedience is becoming Jesus' obedience as he grows and learns what God has commanded in his humanity. He perfectly obeys what God commands. This would have been expensive. It's about an 80-mile trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It would have taken a long time. They probably went about 20 miles a day, and it took three or four days to get there. And they are there to observe Passover. Luke mentions it specifically, and I think it's a quiet reminder of how Jesus ultimately will be our Savior. You remember Passover from when we were in the book of Exodus, that day when God brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and how the death angel goes over Egypt, and those who do not believe God and obey him are judged in their sins. And so the firstborn of all of Egypt dies, and the children of Israel are commanded to kill a lamb and to take some blood and put it on the doorpost of their houses. And then they eat the feast of Passover, recognizing how God redeems them and saves them, how a lamb has taken the judgment of God in their place and rescued them. And imagine for a moment the family of Jesus sitting there. Joseph would have slaughtered a lamb, And they would have eaten a meal together as a family that commemorated the salvation that God brought for all of his people. And as Mary is eating that, she's thinking, my baby is the savior of the world. What is God going to do through baby Jesus? And now as the boy Jesus begins to celebrate the Passover with his family, 
as, as Jesus would have watched that lamb be killed, think about his own future and what that would have meant, that he was going to be the lamb of God who would die for the sins of the whole world. He knew because he saw that sacrifice offered year after year after year after year as his righteous parents obeyed the law of Moses and took him to temple. In part, Luke puts this story here, not just so we get a glimpse into the life of Jesus, but so that we can see young Jesus is fulfilling the law. We see his obedience. In fact, not only do you see the family's obedience to the law, you see Jesus keeping the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Think for just a second about the staggering implication of what that meant. Have have you ever, you know, especially as you were a kid or maybe a teenager, have you ever felt like your parents were clueless? I'll put my hand on real quick. My parents are here. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? That your parents just didn't get it? They didn't know? Well, think for a second about the fact that Jesus is the son of God. His parents literally didn't know things that he knew. And yet... God the Father said, honor your father and mother. And Jesus submits to Mary and Joseph. And even though he's not wrong, he is in his father's house doing what honors God. And they say, we've got to go home to Nazareth. And he honors them and obeys. And the scripture says he submits to them. So you see his obedience even as a 12-year-old boy. If that's not proof that Jesus is God, I I don't know what is. Having a 12-year-old boy sinlessly submit to his parents. Not only that. You know, the, the thing that Jesus says is that he has to be in his father's house. But the thing that he is doing is he is devoted to learning. In verse 40 and in verse 52, it says that Jesus is growing in wisdom. And in his humanity, Jesus is born like other humans, which means he needed to be taught and he needed instruction. And this is a mystery. We don't fully understand how this works. There are times when it's clear that Jesus is learning like any other boy would. And then there are times where, like as he says, I need to be in my father's house. He demonstrates a, a, a knowledge of his identity as God's unique son in a way that we don't fully know how that tension worked where he's both human and divine and sometimes he knows things supernaturally but other times he needs to learn. But the thing is, he is being an example here of being devoted to learning the word of God. You see that he as a 12-year-old boy has a desire to sit among teachers. He is an example for all 12-year-olds everywhere and for children that we ought to be hungry to know the word of God and it shouldn't wait until you're an adult. You see that he is listening to teachers and asking them questions. In verse 46, you see that he is able to answer questions with astonishing understanding in verse 47. And, And that, for those of you who came to our Seder supper this past year, or if you've ever been part of something like that, if you've ever been with a Jewish family as they observe Seder, you'll know what they do is they have questions and answers that are part of the dinner. They say things like the father, you know, or sorry, one of the sons will say, why on this night do we eat unleavened bread? On all other nights we eat bread with leaven, but on this night we eat unleavened bread. And, And the son will ask the question and the father will give an answer. And there's a right answer 
and it's usually short and succinct, but it's intended to be a conversation. It's expected that as the kids grow up, yeah, they repeat the question, but at the same time, they begin to have genuine curiosity. And so in the context of a Seder, where they are at the temple, this is what Jesus would have been doing. He would have been the boy asking those questions. And then as they're at the temple, he sits down with rabbis who teach in the exact same way. They have questions that are intended to help you think and ponder what the word of God meant. And so he is responding in the context of teaching. At 12, he is almost a young man. And so at 13, he would have been considered a young man. This is preparation for the next year. This is, this is getting ready. This is learning. And he is not just going through it as a teenager because he has to. He's going through it with eagerness and understanding. He is engaged. He wants to know what's true. And he believes that there is wisdom in the scriptures. And he's hungry to not only know what they say, but what they mean for him. So you find Jesus setting an example in being devoted to knowing the word of God. And then finally, he actually speaks. So you see the example of his parents. You see his example in being devoted to teaching. Finally, he actually says something. This is the first time in the book that Jesus says anything. One commentator, he pointed out that angels and shepherds and priests and prophets, even the infant John the Baptist gave a testimony in his mother's womb, leaping at the presence of Mary. And Elizabeth and Mary and the prophetess Anna, all of these different people, angelic and human, have talked about the baby Jesus. It's like a drum roll that's building and building and building and building. And finally, Jesus steps onto the stage and we hear the Messiah speak. And what does he say? He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some of you might remember from older translations, some translations say that I I must be about my father's business. Really, neither translation is wrong. That might seem kind of maddening. The, The reason there's a difference there is there's actually not a noun. It's an implied thing from context. And so some people have seen what he was doing and said he is about his father's business in teaching and in learning. And then some people have looked at where he was and said, well, he's in the temple. He's in his father's house. And so both of them are actually getting at something that's very true in the context Either way, whether it's about my father's business or in my father's house, his choice to stay in the temple is clear. He is in his father's house, and his dedication to learning the word of God is clear. So he is about his father's business. The things of God are happening at the temple. People are reading the law. People are learning what it means to obey. The sacrifices that celebrate God's goodness, that allow sinners to enjoy his presence and blessings in their lives, all of those things are happening in his father's house. And I think sometimes we forget or maybe minimize the role that Jesus has as teacher. But he really did come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We're going to see that in, in a couple of weeks. And he did that by preaching and teaching. That's why we have his teaching preserved in our Bibles. That's why we have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. That's why we have the parables. He's not a political revolutionary, although Christianity does revolutionize the world. 
He's not even primarily a healer, although he does that too. First, he is a preacher and a teacher. And you find that beginning here in his boyhood, he, like other boys his age, is learning about God. And Jesus' devotion to the temple was lifelong. In fact, Matthew 21.13 records Jesus cleaning out the temple. One of, one of the, the more colorful things that, that he does is provocative. We don't totally understand. It's like, how is Jesus angry right now? And he's flipping over tables. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. The expectation is you come to the temple to pray. You come to the temple to worship God. And he's passionate that God and men and women can meet and can know one another. Passion for the Father's house was a lifelong theme of Jesus' life. Not only does Luke show it here at the beginning of Jesus' life, the very last verse in the Gospel of Luke shows this too. It says, after Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples appear daily in the temple, that they worship Jesus and were daily in the temple blessing God. Those are the very last two verses of Luke chapter 24. So the the passion for his father's house was the beginning and the end of his earthly ministry. It defined who he was. He was here so that people could come to know God. And so there are two ways that I think we can take this, this little anecdote from his life and understand it in our lives. I think there's something that's so critical here that sometimes we might miss because of the way we talk about Jesus as the Savior. And so what I want to do in the remaining time, we, we've spent all our time up to now talking about the boy Jesus in this episode, and, and we've seen the example of, of his parents' obedience, and we've seen the example of his obedience, and we've seen his passion for God's law and God's teaching, and we've seen his passion for obeying and how he submitted to his human parents. But now I want to talk about how Jesus is our Savior in two ways. I say two ways. How is Jesus the Savior in two different ways? He is. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes one way that Jesus is our Savior. And I think this is, this is good. This is the way that we usually think of Jesus as our Savior. And I, and I don't want to diminish it in any way. If anything, this is, this is more important than anything else. But it shouldn't be the only way we understand Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying that for our sake, for my sake, for your sake, God made Jesus who knew no sin. You know from Luke Even as a 12-year-old, he knew no sin. He honored his parents. He obeyed the law. He kept it perfectly, even as he was growing up as a boy. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you remember the psalm that we read, Psalm 40, you heard the agonizing prayers of Jesus as he is being punished for our sin. And you know the things that he endured for us. The, the Bible is so clear that your sin separates you from God. My sin separates me from God. 
And Jesus, as our Savior, lived a sinless life so that one day he could take the punishment for our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could know God in a personal way, so that we could come into God's presence without being destroyed by his holiness. Jesus is our Savior because Jesus is our substitute. He did not deserve the punishment of God because he was sinless, but he willingly took the punishment of God so that you and I could be forgiven and made clean. And so Jesus is our substitute. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is clearly teaching. But not only that, and, and here's what I actually kind of want to stress this morning. Not only is Jesus our substitute, and that's so fundamental and so critical. If, if you walk away and don't think of anything else, I do want you to remember that Jesus is our substitute. Where you and I failed, Jesus succeeded. Where you and I sinned, Jesus never sinned. And if you wrestle with feelings of guilt and shame, I urge you, the scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That happens through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing you do will wash your sins away, but faith in what Jesus did for you will make you clean before God and you'll find forgiveness and you'll find peace. But not only is Jesus our substitute who makes that possible, He's also our example. And so I want to encourage you to look with me at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 to see how Jesus is our example. And I believe this is true even as a 12-year-old that this little episode from Jesus' life helps us understand what it means to obey God and to follow God. So go with me to the book of Hebrews. It's towards the end of the New Testament. Find chapter 12. And I just want to read chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to talk about how not only is Jesus our substitute, he is also our example. And the writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians. They're people who have already trusted that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. They've been baptized to show their faith. And now he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 makes it clear that, that not only are we to look to Jesus as our substitute, we are to look to Jesus as our example. We are to imitate the things that he did. And I want to say this so clearly because sometimes we emphasize, and I think we rightly emphasize, Jesus as our substitute who dies in our place. I don't want to diminish that. But that can lead to an attitude that says, you know what, I prayed a prayer, I've been baptized, God forgave me for my sin, and I'm good. And that completely ignores the entire Bible teaches you to obey what God commands you to obey. We are to follow the example of our Savior in obedience. When Jesus preaches and teaches, he's not just teaching you that you need grace. 
He is teaching you what is right and what is wrong and helping you understand what you need to obey. The commands that Jesus gives are real commands. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Are you going to fail? Yes. That's why Jesus is your substitute. But that doesn't diminish our responsibility to know what's true and to follow him in obedience. And the scriptures teach that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will grow in that. You can improve. It's not a hopeless scenario. Will you be perfect before you die? No. But by the grace of Jesus, you are forgiven and you will come into the presence of God when you die. But you should be obeying him and wanting to obey and growing in obedience until that day comes. There's a... a Second century theologian by the name of Irenaeus that really emphasizes what Jesus does for us as he lives every stage of his life. And as we think about Jesus as our example, as the, as the perfect Adam, is what Paul calls him in Romans 5, as the, as the human that never failed where Adam failed or, or where you and I failed. And Irenaeus says this, Jesus came to save all through means of himself. All, I say, who through him are born again to God. So that is, Jesus is the Savior, and everyone can be saved, but not everyone will be saved, because not everyone is born again. So when he's saying that Jesus will save all through means of himself, he says very clearly, I say, all who through him are born again to God, meaning, he says, infants, children, and boys, and youths, and old men, And he therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, the sanctifying infants, a child for children, the sanctifying those who are of this age, being at the same time made to them an example of piety, righteousness and submission, a youth for youths, becoming an example to youths and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. What does that mean? Uh, I think it's helpful sometimes to look at old saints like this. Because he shows a very early understanding that they were teaching within the church that Jesus makes it possible for us to be born again. You have to be born again. He's not diminishing that in any way. But he's showing that the humanity of Christ makes it possible for him to be our savior. That because he really was a man and that he really lived every stage of life He could be our substitute, but not only is he our substitute, he is also our example. Every stage of his life, he shows us how to live. And we ought to be dedicated to following his example, to learning from it. So there are a couple kids here today. There are a couple people, you're about this age. You're about 12 years old. Some of you are 13. Some of you are a little bit older than that. I want to say a word to you for just a minute. If you are this age... You can learn from the example of Jesus. He is dedicated to knowing God. You should not wait until you are older to learn about God. You can follow the example of Jesus, who is 12 years old, and have a passion for knowing what God says in his word. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to start that now. Don't wait. In fact, let me say to you, if you wait, you will regret it. You don't have to make the same mistakes that everyone else makes your age. You can learn from the teaching of Scripture. You can learn what it means to have your sins forgiven. You can learn what it means to obey. And I want to say to you, as young people, 
that you ought to follow the example of Jesus. For those of you who are a little bit older, and really all of us, we ought to be dedicated to learning and teaching. And parents, for those of you who have kids who are, are in children's church right now, I, I want to mention something that, that is incredible. I, I did this with Isaac for the first time last week. You get a handout when your kids come out of children's church, and it tells you right at the top what the point of the story is that we, we taught them in our children's church ministry. And I asked Isaac last week, he learned about Job, and he learned that even when God lets us suffer, that God is not mean. Isaac is four, and I knew what to ask him because I took the little piece of paper and looked at what he studied, and that one sentence gave me something to start a conversation with him. Parents, grandparents, if your kids are over there, have a conversation with them. Ask them a question. And if you say, what did you learn? Nine times out of ten, every time I have asked my kids that, they go, hmm? But if you go, hey, what did you learn about Abraham? Then they'll go, oh, and they might, they might be able to tell you. And if you say, God made a covenant to bless all the world through Abraham. Can you tell me about that? That gives them something to latch onto, and they'll do a better job of telling you what they learned. So parents and grandparents, let me urge you, before they drop this little piece of paper, grab it, look at just the one sentence. It's highlighted in yellow so you can't miss it. And take advantage of the teaching that happens in our church and do for your kids what Mary and Joseph were doing with their kids. Teach them the truths of Scripture. Have a conversation with them. And for all of us, let's be dedicated to knowing what God says in His Word and to meeting Him, to coming into His presence on a daily basis. So if there's two, two ways of understanding Jesus as our Savior, that he is our substitute and he is our example, as application today for everyone here, let me say this. First, he is your substitute so you can rest in his blood and in his resurrection. Rest in what Jesus did for you. But number two, he is your example. And so I want to encourage you to follow his example. Submit to the leadership God has placed in your life. Be devoted to knowing God and his word and be devoted to prayer. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help, Lord. We are weak and you are strong. We cannot do this unless you are at work in us. We pray that you would help us to remember the example of Jesus. Help us to be devoted to your word and I ask that you would Make it alive in us. Help us remember it. Help us obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.